from the HBA Podcast Studio in New York City. Welcome to The Medium Rules. I'm Alan Baldishan. Print, radio, and television. That was it. The burning question. Is it PR? Is it digital strategy? The agency world nowadays is very siloed. What are you guys seeing? We are definitely looking at all the frontier tech. you got to be very creative to get to the consumer to notice your brand and buy it. That's a huge opportunity, a huge challenge, trying to figure out what even brand beat. Joining me today in the HBA podcast studio are two gentlemen, Evan Kraut and Guy Pore, who spend their respective days eating, sleeping, and drinking how to accelerate startups. Specifically, both Evan and Guy are deeply and passionately focused on how to deploy social media and marketing technology to help consumer-facing, brand-centric startups acquire customers, drive sales, and, in a nutshell, win. Evan started his career on Wall Street with UBS. He then went on to co-found a private label menswear company with his brother and father with the suspiciously familiar label, Jason Evans. Evans' next stop was at the innovative and, for its time, highly disruptive social media agency, Mr. Youth, where he rose to chief growth officer. Following the successful sale of Mr. Youth to publicist, Evan essentially created a job for himself at the prestigious Madison Avenue advertising company, Gray Group, as head of Gray Adventures. Gray Adventures is best characterized as Gray's Skunk Works team, focused on developing innovative products and services that fuel new revenue streams for Gray's brand clients, its partners, and the agency itself. Evan is also an early-stage investor via his Milkbox Partners Fund, as well as an advisor to a number of startups, principally consumer-focused, including most notably the ubiquitous subscription dental care company, Quip. By contrast, Guy, who grew up in Israel, came out of the IDF and started his career out in content as a production assistant for the Israeli Broadcast Association, and then as content manager for the Israeli web video channel, Walla. Guy then founded Redhead, an Israeli ad agency that worked with the film studios DreamWorks and Paramount, as well as the consumer products behemoth Unilever. Guy then went on to work in executive positions at a series of agencies, including Young and Rubicam, BBDO, and Silver and Partners. The latter, where he was instrumental in developing and launching the U.S. ad campaign for the web design software platform Wix. In 2014... Guy founded the company Playground here in New York City, which he continues to own and operate today. Playground describes itself as a record label for startups, which takes an immersive approach to partnering with funded startups on sales and marketing to accelerate fame. So welcome to Guy and Evan, uh, and thank you for coming and being on the Medium Rules and look forward to a great conversation. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So... uh, (laughs) Evan, I got to say, really, the burning question is, the guy who does the radio reads for Quip, is he faking a British accent, or is that really legit? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think you're referencing Simon Enever, who is the founder and CEO of Quip, and he is British. He's literally actually So he is an actual Brit. Okay, well, tell us about, why don't we start there, since that's a company that you're pretty familiar with, um, in terms of, and they really are ubiquitous. Um, and, uh, to my experience using radio as a medium for a D to C startup is pretty interesting and it's not something you hear about. And 
what, what, let, let's start there and maybe work backwards from there in terms of that story. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, only very recently are we seeing startups that were for the last decade using primarily digital channels, social media, really to acquire customers. Now there's been a big paradigm shift in terms of those channels becoming less efficient from sort of a customer acquisition cost. And now they're going back to traditional methods, right? So the old uh, advertising model was basically print, radio and television. And those were the only three mediums that all these famous ad agencies like Gray, where I'm working, um, that was it. When you did a campaign, it was print, TV and radio. And, and you just sort of kept on optimizing and, you know, working those channels. Then they started to get less and less efficient. And with the advent of digital and social media and everything else, um, there was sort of a big pendulum swing where you could acquire customers extremely efficiently through Facebook targeting and advertising. And it almost went kind of the full way towards that exclusively um, for D2C startups. Now it's really kind of coming back probably in a more balanced fashion. So radio and even podcasts um, are becoming a really interesting new medium to just drive more brand awareness. And they actually have a lot of uh, relevance for conversion, surprisingly. Really? That's fantastic. Um Guy, tell us about Playground and what when you when you describe Playground as a record label for startups, what do yeah. you mean by that? And 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 maybe with that, talk a little bit about your what what when you think about the agency model and Playground, mm-hmm. what's the approach there? What are you doing that's innovative? What are you doing that's distinct? Oh, I love it. You want me to plug my own company? I love I you. I love too. it already. Of course, that's what we're here for. <laughs> well. You know what, let's take a step back. One of the reasons uh, that I'm here, here as in New York, is I also had a startup. So as a startup founder, I was deeply immersed in the needs of startups, okay, from the very beginning to funding and so on. And what startups really need is, let's put it, two KPIs, become rich and become famous, okay? And they don't have the money to do it. So therefore, they need a set of skills and a set of services that will take them from to that point, which include obviously advertising, obviously analytics, but also promotion, also business development, sales, putting them up there in front of their audiences to speak and so on. And let's put it this way. The agency world nowadays is very siloed. They don't offer all of these things. And when I was looking around and, you know, I was actually doing this for my clients and for myself as well. I was thinking, wait a minute, which industry has that service or has those capabilities already? And if you look around, the record labels are actually doing it for their clients. That's what they promise their clients. They discover, you know, a band in a bar that sounds horrible, but they think they have something. And they go up to the band, they sign them up and say, we'll make you rich and famous. And this is what we'll do for you. So Playground takes that exact same approach and applies it to startups. And it's our core belief, the whole Playground team, is that today's rock stars are the startups and the startups founders. And um, I can go deep into that. I mean, why do I think that way, for instance? Let let me stop you there and say, so what do you do for them? Startup walks in the door, just got my seed round. Um, How do you you unpack that? What what are your first hundred days? You really want to go into it? Because there's a whole list of stuff. Give me your highlights. The highlights is finding out what the differentiator, what the the go-to-market strategy is, and start developing on that. 
and then it's the execution of the go-to-market strategy and the execution of the product market fit. It's a lot of data behind it. And then it's a lot of the brand work and how to get into the right audiences and in the right places. And it's a, a lot of iteration, a lot of trial, data, optimize, try again. That's the first 100 days. Okay. And hopefully at that point, you will get to that inflection point where, okay, the CAC or the cost for uh, the user acquisition cost becomes something feasible, and then you double down on it. Gotcha. Um, startup comes into gray. You guys work, obviously, with big brands. You are, you're also working with startups. Yep. Uh, what are you doing with startups, and what do you see that they're not doing? What do you see that they're doing wrong? What do they need help with, primarily, from your perspective? Yeah, so obviously every startup's totally different. Right. They come in at different stages in their life cycle. Um, but if we're talking about the early stage startups, kind of a seed round, you know, funded startup, typically what they've done so far or what they haven't done is that they haven't built a brand. And today, more than really in the last decade, brand is becoming the differentiator for startups as much as product. So whereas we could sort of rewind and say Casper, for example, you know, came out, they actually did a great job of building a brand, but also a new category. But very quickly right behind Casper was Tuft & Needle, Lisa Mattress, a number of others, Helix, Purple, et cetera. You could go online and, you know, talk about Mattress in a Box, which was the innovation. Um, and now there's a dozen of them, right? There's price comparison websites just specifically for these, you know, D2C mattresses. So how do you then differentiate, right? They, yes, they had first mover advantage, but you could also take like the Uber Lyft example, right? Lyft really kind of, you know, caught up in some ways to Uber where um, you really need to create a brand. And now we're seeing that play out with Uber who had obviously not the best brand given some of the practices and some of the things that had gone on. So when a startup's coming into gray, it's really thinking about, who are they? What is their brand? How do they show up in the world? And then obviously all of the tactics to really get them out there to Guy's point. So is it PR? Is it digital strategy? Is it the marketing? Is it doing radio? Is it what's going to be the best medium to get that brand out there? Um, and then how do we start to optimize for customer acquisition costs and things like that? Okay, so... Wait, can I add on yeah, something like that? Because uh, what Evan said is absolutely correct, but I'd like to go a little bit back into the psyche of the startup founder Perfect. at the seed Where stage, okay? Because, uh, you know, we tend to think that success is easy and once you've got your money, everything's cool. But you got to remember the psyche of the startup founders at that point. They are starving, okay? This is not some, you know, if we go back to the music world, we're not talking about Madonna pop huge. These are punk rock bands, you know, <laughs> surviving on ramen noodles and beer, okay? And... What that brings out is the first thing startup founders want to do is sell, 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 sell. They hire salespeople before they hire marketing people. They push their people out to start knocking on doors and getting sales and whatever before they think about the brand. And when you ask what is the help that these startup founders need or these startups need, the first thing is priorities. If you're just going out and selling, out of the 100 doors you knock on, maybe one will open and maybe 0.5 will actually buy your product. Okay, but if you start building a brand, the odds shift in your favor immediately. And I would say the first help is priorities. Get the brand right, then start selling. So let me ask you this. <clears throat> You're an investor. I've done some investing. You've done some investing. Yep. Company comes in. Seed funded company comes in. What are 
some of the earmarks of a company from an agency perspective, from a brand perspective, where you can look at that company and say, I think these guys are going to win. What is that magic? You know, because you, you, the, the one answer would be from a tech perspective, a CTO perspective, you know, what have these guys done before? What is it from an agency, from a brand perspective that would give you a kind of a warm feeling about how this startup's going to do? Yeah. So, I mean, as an investor, so putting that hat on for a minute, you know, everybody pretty much is aligned with the methodology of picking with founder market, you know, does the founder fit the market? They talk about product market fit. Now a lot of people talk about founder market fit. So you get a real gut for if a particular startup just feels right, if they're structured the right way. And of course the team, so founder meaning team, um, we evaluate it the same way because founders often are the brand of the startup, right? Not all. Some you don't know who the founding team are and they're not like the celebrity kind of founder the way that Travis was with an Uber or, you know, what have you. But there is a feeling to it. And that usually is part of the story of the startup, right? So when you're trying to pull out a brand, you know, out of a product company or a startup, you're trying to understand what is that founding story? Why is it meaningful? Is there something there with the founder? And if not, you kind of have to manufacture a brand, right? So then it's about really using kind of unbridled creativity to think about what is unique about this proposition? How are you differentiated in the marketplace? How are consumers going to feel about this product and then the brand that's associated with it? And then, you know, what I said before, it's really about iterating quickly. So oftentimes we'll go down a path test it with consumers and it doesn't work. So you got to be very quick to be, you know, willing to try things that may not be right. And then eventually you find kind of the right path and then pour the gas on it. Gotcha. Let me ask you that guy. That's a similar question guy, because you're making decisions at times based on an evaluation of, do I want the equity in this startup? Yeah. Because that's part part of, so, so what do you, what do you, what, what do you look for? What are you thinking about? What turns you on and what has been successful? What hasn't worked? What have you learned since you started in 2014 about making bets. Okay, so first of all, I follow Evan. He's <laughs> investing, I'm in. <laughs> uh, for me, by the way... Follow me going forward. But you also yeah. follow Evan. <laughs> so everybody's be. following Evan. <laughs> He's our Jason Calacanis. <laughs> and Jason Calacanis is my Jason Calacanis. So there I you go. <laughs> for me, first of all, both Evan and I have built businesses. Okay, and so we know how tough it is. And when I look at a startup founding team, I look for the grit. You know, I look for that founder who will take those punches in the gut and keep moving forward. And it might be a gut thing. It also might be something that that founder or that team did in the past. But that is something that is critical for me because I have in the past, speaking of mistakes, I have taken equity in companies where, you know, the the founder had a great pedigree and came from like a big agency and, uh, you know, all the fancy things around it. But, you know, once things got really tough, that founder found a job at at a bigger company that paid him that nice cushy salary and uh, lived happily ever after. And that's not what we're looking for in a startup founder. You want somebody who can take it all the way, Mm -hmm. get punched in the face and keep going. Yeah, yeah. Just like we did. You, you yeah. have to, because you're going to have setbacks. There's no question you're about it. You're going to have a lot of setbacks. That's yeah. part of being a startup. Yeah. That's why I think 
they call it a startup and not just another business. You get those, you get hit in the face, you get hit hard, and you get hit on scale. It's also a good reason to develop relationships with you know yeah. the ecosystem and founders before there's a term sheet on the table, right? So what happens now is you get into these situations, which is like a hot deal, you yeah. know, like closing our round, you know, a startup is raising and they're just making like an artificial deadline to try to create, you know, that that interest. And uh, you have to make a snap decision if you want to get into a round. And with so much money in the marketplace right now, that that is true. That will yeah. happen. The deal will close before you even have a chance to do due diligence. So the way to kind of combat that is to really be out there meeting with people before they're raising, understand who they are. Are they really committed? Are you seeing them over a period of months, maybe even years? You know, have they really convinced you? Have you gotten to know them? Because then when the opportunity arises to invest, it's, it's much easier to evaluate if they have that grit, if they're truly committed to this thing or if they're just trying to do a money grab and start something and be like the cool you know rock star startup founder whether they fail or not yeah um let me pivot quickly and uh and ask you this evan in terms of the technology front and what you're doing at gray what are you guys seeing that you can deploy into startups and take from startups that's going on today what 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 is what what is interesting to you? What what, what is going on, and staying on sort of brand centric uh, startups? Uh, what what what's what's kind of on the cutting edge from your perspective? Yeah, so we are definitely looking at all the frontier tech. Um, which just means the newest stuff that's still, you know, being figured out, right? Augmented reality, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, IoT. So, you know, internet-enabled devices. You know, we definitely do specifically seek out startups that have interesting technology, both to work with directly, but also then to bring to our clients. So that's really the the way that Gray Adventures is structured. Okay. So we're looking at it from kind of both sides. Um, you know, it's funny because the really small startups, even though many of them are trying to tackle these real, you know, frontier tech problems, it's actually the bigger companies who are making headway there, like the Googles of the world. Um, it's really hard for a small startup to make the kind of advances in, let's just say, AI that a Google can with its resources, with its, you know, multiple different divisions focused on natural language processing and another focused on, you know, deep learning. And so a lot of that real, you know, pioneering tech um, is happening there. But startups have an amazing way to think about a nuanced commercialization of that tech. So there may be a startup that's using AI specifically for insurance comparisons, right? So purchasing insurance. Google's not going to futz around with something that's like comparing insurance quotes using AI. They're doing things that are like big moonshots, right? Using yeah. AI to figure out the next pharmaceutical drug for Parkinson's, right? Which has no kind of medicine associated or at least not, you know, a primary cure. So, you know, the startups can sometimes do a better job of quickly commercializing, you know, a particular frontier tech. Um, but it's also a time issue. So when they're coming in, it might be five more years before, let's just say, augmented reality becomes a clear um, path to profitability. So it's hard for a startup to raise enough money to even just stay around. You know, oftentimes they're just running out of money before the market, you know, hits. Mm -hmm. So we saw that for the last five years with virtual reality. Yeah. We're only finally knocking on the door of VR becoming a possibly, you know, successful, profitable, you know, technology in, uh, in consumer, you know, space. What does that look like? So in terms of VR it, it, specifically? Yeah, yeah. It, let's stay on AR, VR. Sure. What does that look like in terms of 
the application of that technology as it's now kind of reaching market mm-hmm. in consumer brands and consumer marketing and, and, what, and what you do. Yeah. So VR happens to be something I'm working on. Um, and interestingly, what I think everybody assumed would be the way that VR became successful was in gaming, so like video gaming, and then entertainment, movies, film, things of that nature. And while that's true, and while those are kind of obvious uses for it, uh, the number one most interesting and potentially most successful use case for VR is actually healthcare. So some amazing advances have been made in using VR for a number of different sort of disease states, therapies, issues. So post-traumatic stress disorder, pain management, um, neuroses and other kinds of, you know, issues in that regard. They're showing incredibly clinically proven data that an immersive virtual reality experience that's geared at an issue can actually help reduce the, you know, the symptoms of that issue. So who would have thought when somebody was incredible, right? Coming out with VR just to have fun and live in some kind of virtual video game. Who knew that could actually save somebody's life based on a a mental or an anxiety issue or something like that. So we're actually working with a number of our clients in healthcare um, on VR. Anything specific you can talk about or is it all? Um, uh, I could talk about some of the things that, that we're looking into. So basically VR has the ability to rewire your brain chemistry. So it's almost wow. as if a virtual experience done right, it's more akin to a real experience, a real world experience than it is to a media experience like seeing a movie or seeing a television show. So it has that impact. So some of the things that we've seen are people who are going through some kind of psychiatric problem, um, and this is one of the things we're working on, it can actually be as effective as full-on therapy, where you would go see a psychiatrist and take medication. So we're looking into the way of building out a product and services suite geared at that solution, Um, and that's one of the things that we're looking into. I mean, that sounds like a Black Mirror episode. (laughs) I know, right? That is out there. I know. Which, I don't know if you guys have seen, I don't know if you're into Black Mirror, but have you seen the USS Callister episode, the VR Star Trek one? No. No. Must watch. It, All right. it, it brings it to mind. Uh, and anyone listening, I'm sure if you've seen it, you'd agree. Let me ask you this, guy. Yes. So we're talking about, to some extent, harvesting technology from startups. And, and, and to some extent, that's sort of where Evan was and suggesting that, you know, it's difficult for startups to do these big frontier technology projects based on, if nothing else, resources. And yeah. what I've seen, and this may uh, strike a chord with you, is that a lot of times that's coming from tech transfer, from deep academic research. For example, um, Mobileye from uh, Hebrew U, for example. You, I know, interact with a lot of Israeli startups. Are you seeing startups with deep tech that's coming out of those academic institutions? Is that something that's on your radar? You know what? I love that question. So first of all, if you or in any of your viewers have not been yet to Israel, okay, go just for to see one thing. First of all, the beaches are amazing and so on, and the food, but if you walk down Tel Aviv, okay, every coffee shop is full all the time and everybody's sitting there with a laptop open and everybody's got a startup, okay? That's the seed. It's insane. That's the seed. Everybody has come out of some kind of military unit, okay? Everybody has, I mean... I don't know if you read the press, but there's 
8200, which is uh, intelligence and all the smart, you know, all the smart kids come out of there. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I was going to say this, I was a fighter in the Israeli army and the people now getting all the glory are the guys that's in computers computer and guys. bringing yeah. down Iranian uh, power, you know, chemical uh, plants and stuff like that from 7,000 miles away. It's fantastic. But the reason I'm saying all this is you don't need to go deep into academia to get these ideas, this technology and these startups. When you're dealing with Israeli startups, they come out naturally because, as I said, people came out of the army with certain skills they were taught for three, four, five, six years. Same thing with the academia. They usually leave those deep learning spaces and go do it on their own. And I think, I think that's very exciting. So I wish I could say, yeah, we'll go to this university and that university and pick some brains. No, you go to a coffee shop. <laughs> That's yeah. where you pick the best brains. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, so um, wh wh what do you guys, let me throw this out to both of you. What do you guys imagine to be the agency of the future? What, do you, what role do you see agencies playing Going forward as this technology evolves, That's what a what good you're, one. You're, what give give me a, a white sheet of paper? What does the agency of the future look like? Okay, so first of all, I want to say this: I had the same kind of job Evan has. I had that job in BBDO in Israel, which means you look for for technology and you know you want to you want to implement them with your clients and make everything more efficient. I'm not in position anymore. So actually, I think it'd be more fun hearing from Evan first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say Guy and I are both really trying to invent the agency exactly, of the future. So it's yeah. pretty much like, what are we doing? Um, my <clears throat> sort of biggest insight, I guess, in creating this role, creating great adventures, was that client-side companies, which relate to all organizations, you know, they can do a lot of what agencies used to do possibly more efficiently, maybe not always as well, but well enough, right? So they could do creative development. They could produce film and video. There's so many freelancers and easy ways to kind of do those things. So when I think of the agency in the future, I don't see it being just a better version of what we have today. I really do see a bigger pivot. And I think what agencies have as kind of this interesting dynamic is when you put creative people together with strategic people, you know, with account people who understand their clients' businesses, you get this kind of alchemy. And that can really help you think of totally new businesses, new business models, new ways to monetize, so new revenue streams. And that's really what I'm focused on. So it creates kind of an aligned incentive with your clients from the last 150 years that agencies have been around, it's been client retains agency, pays them fees, and whether essentially, whether the client succeeds or not, agency gets fees, right? Yeah. So it's not really aligned in that way. However, if you're truly building a business together where the agency is developing your, your strategy and your business model and you're sharing in the actual revenue of the business that you co-create, well, then you have aligned incentives. Then you're able to really kind of pour the gas on that, that engine. So I see agencies becoming brand incubators, product incubators, and almost doing that on behalf of their clients. Being on the cap table, in effect, yeah. as partners, from the get-go and building the business together. That's right. What about governance in that model? 
I think it won't be so dissimilar to how it is now. I mean, client-side organizations are going to be the ones that are the end seller of the product or services to, you know, whatever their customers are. And so they're going to kind of manage this process. And I think there's something that works about keeping an agency or a consultancy, you know, sort of outside of house, right? So you'll still have that separate kind of service relationship. Um, but there will be kind of a, a more like revenue share embedded arrangement, some kind of embedded, you know, project ownership. Gotcha. Got He stole my answer. <laughs> but, uh, just to iterate, I think there, the, there'll be a big pivot. It won't be just like, you know, what we had in the last few years where, okay, agencies did print and, and radio and TV, and now they're also doing digital and social and analytics and so on. I think it'll be a much bigger pivot to, uh, to actually being partners, being on the cap table. And as Evan said, the great thing about agencies is you have these wonderfully creative people all in one room. And that is power to create the new thing. And I think agencies, agencies' mandate will be to actually create new products for the brand and then say new products for the brand, new ways of reaching the consumers that we probably don't even know about. But uh, I'll give you an example of something I love. I think it's Anomaly, the ad agency that created the vape pen for Humble, right? Yep. A product they thought up, it's making, it's huge in sales. It's something that's extension of the Humboldt brand. And it's, if I'm not mistaken, they're on the cap table on that as well. And it really works in terms of a business model. Do you think that it's a coincidence that that happens to be? Is that a cannabis vape or a it tobacco? Is. Do you think it's a coincidence that that model is emerging in this frontier industry, if you will, which is cannabis that's sort of blowing up, that that's where people are taking chances and taking swings? I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't think anything coincidence. I think everything is conspiracy. Right. I'm joking, okay. but uh, <laughs> obviously the sexier, you know, more exciting industries will provide great creative, you know, creative fodder for these creative people in the agencies. And people and on the edge are in those industries in some exactly, sense. Exactly. Right? That's yeah. what's going on. And let's be honest, people like it. <laughs> yeah. People want to get but involved. People want to get involved. People want to find interesting ways to be involved in this, in this kind of, in these frontier industries. They want to, and plus they, let's put this way, there's way more creative outlet because, you know, uh, the cannabis industry, for instance, is a creative wild west right now, right? There's hardly any regulation, at least in the country, in the states where it's legal, there's, you got to be very creative to get to the consumer, to notice your brand and buy it. It's, it's a, it's a creative's dream. I mean, it, it is, it is, it is maybe almost a cliche at this point with respect to that particular industry, the extent to which people are trying to figure out what even brand means exactly. when it comes yeah. to cannabis. And, um, you know, that's, that's a huge opportunity, a huge challenge. And there is just, I think so much. IQ flowing in there as regulation evolves, as it opens up, which it is. And, and right now there aren't, there aren't brands yet, to your point. There are no brands. So if we were to rewind, you know, to the big brands that, you know, popped up in the United States, it would be like inventing the Coca-Cola no, of the industry. Or the Budweiser. Or, exactly. Yeah. So just an incredible opportunity. For, Other than in maybe, maybe in, in, in vapes, you know, you've got Pax yeah. built an amazing brand, but certainly in the product itself, in dispensary, 
etc., uh, etc. Et that seems to be a big canvas. Yeah, it is. Um, and I want to, you know, like in poker, I will see you and raise you one. You were talking about a lot of IQ in this area. There's also a lot of opportunity for IP. In other words, you can actually create new products, okay, and license them and so on in that industry because, again, it's the Wild West. And that includes fake pens, includes, you know, everything from oils instead of bud, whatever, and agencies, because of the creative talent within them, are uniquely positioned to take advantage of that. Yeah, you think so, right? I believe so. Do you so. have yeah. any cannabis startups in your stable or because you're in New York State? That's the only reason. Because I'm in New York and it's not, you know, federally legal here, then no. But once it becomes Something legal... Something on the radar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Oh, yeah. um, guys, I think this has been fantastic. Uh, I want to thank you for coming in. It's been a great conversation. Uh, let's do it again. Let's. Thanks Let's for do us. it. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you very much. All right. That's a wrap on this episode of The Medium Rules with Alan Baldishin. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your own favorite podcast portal. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next time.